This is what God's word says. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those with things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Father, I thank you for being a holy God who sees through the outer appearances, all the pretenses and pretending and even our efforts to perform and sees right to our hearts. Uh, Father, thank you for being the sort of God that's not satisfied with lip service and pretend Christianity. Uh, would you this morning, through your word, draw us close to Jesus? Would you help us to run to him to find purity with him in his perfect soul, in his perfect arms? Uh, would you keep us from being the sort of people that care more about what the others think about us than we do about the reality of what we have in Christ. Speak to us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a few years since the Liver King burst onto the YouTube world's uh, consciousness. Um, if you've never seen him, he looks a little bit like a caveman, only a caveman with an extremely buff, built-out body. He has a big beard, huge muscles, and an outsized personality, and he has a message for the world to see. 
Um, you can have a body like mine if you'll just ascribe to the same workout routine I do. Uh, something he calls ancestral living. It involves particular types of body exercises to be sure, but more importantly, it involves a particular diet. Um, he eats lots and lots of red meat. And from his name, the liver king, you might guess some of the otter parts of animals that he likes to eat on camera. And he claimed if you followed his diet and you did his exercises, you would have no need of vitamins, no need of supplements, certainly no need of performance-enhancing drugs. You could have a buff body just like the liver king. Uh, in fact, in one interview, he was so insistent upon that fact, he declared, of performance-enhancing drugs, I don't touch the stuff. I've never done the stuff. I'm not going to do the stuff. Now, you might think, he protesteth too much. And you would be right. A few months back, another YouTuber did an expose and discovered that the liver king was not, in fact, all natural. Uh, in fact, that he was spending $12,000 a month on steroids. Now, I'm no expert, but that sounds like a lot. <laughs> now, it, the liver king turned out to be a big hypocrite. And uh, we love to pile on hypocrites. And as soon as I use that word, I'm sure you're having particular people or maybe types of people come to your mind, public figures that say, tell people to do one thing and do something else themselves, uh, people who have moral codes that they don't live by themselves, all sorts of examples we have in our lives, certainly in the world around us, of people that play pretend. They claim to be one thing and they turn out to be something else. And if you went out and you asked the world what they thought about Christianity, or Christians, or people in the church, chances are that's where most of their definitions would start. Christians are hypocrites. They preach one thing and they live another. Now before your defenses get up and you get too outraged that people would think that about us, I realize the passage in front of us has Jesus absolutely unloading on the most religious people in his day. It turns out Jesus isn't a fan of pretending or performing. In fact, he wants something far greater than that, actual purity of heart. How can we find it, though? Well, this morning, what we'll see from this passage in Luke is Jesus wants us to leave behind the pretending and performing and come find purity with him. We'll see that in two sections. As Jesus critiques two different groups of religious people, First, in 37 through 44, we'll see that the heart that pretends needs Jesus. The heart that pretends needs Jesus. Then in 45 through 54, we'll see that the heart that performs also needs Jesus. The heart that performs also needs Jesus. And all of this, Jesus will be calling each of us, religious people in a church worshiping God this morning, to leave behind our pretending and performing Come find purity with him. Uh, let's begin in that first one, 37 through 44. The heart that pretends needs Jesus. Our passage picks up, uh, Jesus has been talking to a crowd, but verse 37 shows us the setting has changed. Jesus, while speaking with a Pharisee, was asked to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. Uh, Jesus has given another invitation to a meal, this time probably a lunch of some sort. And as has been the case in all the other meals in people's houses that Jesus has had in Luke's gospel, 
Something more is going to be served up than the food. In fact, Jesus is going to provide a heaping helping of criticism for the religious people of his day. The point of contention comes in verse 38. It is a matter of ritual cleansing. Uh, the Pharisees, what, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he, that is Jesus, did not wash before dinner. Now, a Pharisee has a negative connotation in our mind as we hear it because of all the things written about him in the Bible. Uh, but in those days, a Pharisee was known as a particularly rigorous religious person. They were Bible believers, people that came to the assembly each Sabbath. Uh, they were people that listened to what God's word said and tried to live it out. Even They were so serious in their devotion to living out God's word that they created rules on top of the rules that God actually gave. So for example, a Pharisee saw that there was a requirement to ritually cleanse before you went and did sacrifices in the temple, washing of hands and utensils and things. So they thought to themselves, well, wouldn't it be good? Shouldn't all religious people ritually cleanse their hands before every meal? Isn't every meal an occasion to worship God after all? You see the logic? So as a result, the Pharisees had built up a system of rules and expectations that were man-made and yet were expected to be followed or else. One of them was you had to wash your hands in a very particular fashion. Uh, you didn't dunk, you poured one hand after another. Uh, there were rules about how you wiped off the water afterward. You couldn't air dry. It was okay to wipe off on a wall for some reason. Uh, you could not rub your hands together. It's all a very complicated web of regulations they had built up. Now, Jesus is not being nasty or unhygienic by refusing to wash his hands before dinner. He's making a very particular point. He knows their hearts, and he knows his own hearts. And he knows that their ritual of washing will do nothing to bring purity to them. And he knows his heart is spotless as any soul will ever be. So Jesus flatly refuses and in so doing sets up the point of contention for the, uh, the, the meal. Now what follows is Jesus giving a four-part criticism of not just the Pharisees there, but the entire system of the Pharisees. Uh, the first of those comes by way of an everyday example, and the three after that come with a formula of a woe, much like a prophet from the Old Testament. Uh, the first criticism Jesus gives is that they care for appearances more than they do for the reality. Verse 39, the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Uh, the Pharisees not only cleanse their hands, they would cleanse the utensils and the plates and the cups and the bowls. Um, many times they would sit down and they would wipe the outside and the inside of the bowl very carefully, making sure that they didn't unintentionally cause themselves to be defiled. Now, Jesus takes that everyday example and he says, think about what you're doing here. Uh, you are actually, in your rules that you've created, you are wiping off the exterior. You're making yourselves look good while you don't pay any attention to what's happening on the inside. 
Uh, years ago, I had the misfortune of having a really bad ankle sprain playing basketball. And as a result, I went to the doctor and they put me in a hard cast. They told me for my ankle to heal, it had to remain immobile for several weeks. That's very uncomfortable. No one likes being in a hard cast. I'd have crutches, woe is me, pretty bad. Um, one of the things they told me though is that it's very important to keep the cast dry. Um, now that's easier said than done because if you're in a cast for multiple weeks, uh, even the most hygienic amongst us eventually need to take showers. And it's difficult to get the garbage bags just right around the cast with rubber bands and you're trying to hop in the shower with one leg out. It's, just, it's awkward, it's really difficult. And I thought I did a pretty good job. Um, and from the outside, it sure looked like I did. The cast was as white as it started. People signed it. It was hard. It was rigid. It looked perfectly fine. But after a couple of weeks, I started to feel some itching coming from the inside of the cast. I thought, that's not good. And then the moment of truth came. I went to the doctor to get the cast off, and they used that big circular drill thing that you have in nightmares, and they, they slice it open and crack the shell open. And not only did my foot emerge, something else did, a horrible stench. And in that moment, it was obvious, while it looked fine on the outside, it was actually nasty and defiled on the inside. Water had gotten on the inside. Now, Jesus is, just, in essence, telling the Pharisees, you look good from a distance. You've got the exterior looking clean and proper, but inside... You're defiled and wicked. Now, the particular sins that the Pharisees seemed to be dealing with were greed. Uh, we'll get to more of the, how they viewed money in a second. But they knew how to give the appearance that they were more godly than they actually were. But Jesus tells them that's not what God's interested in. He's not fooled by your performance. He's the same God that made the outside, has made the inside, and he cares more about what's on the inside and what comes out from the inside. It's first criticism, they cared more about appearances than the reality. Second criticism, they miss mountains for minuscule matters, verse 42. They miss big things because they're so focused on little things. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Uh, the Pharisees knew well that God required his people to give. Uh, God required a tithe in the old covenant. A tenth of everything that was earned needed to be offered up to the Lord. Uh, the Pharisees took that obligation seriously. So seriously that they made sure that they didn't just tithe on the big things. They wanted to tithe on the teeny tiny things. Uh, they went, went out to the 10th decimal point, trying to make sure their obligation of giving was not in some way uh, not fulfilled. So they would go into their gardens and they would take the herbs that they would grow that no one else knew about. And they would spend hours chopping up the mint and the rue and the cumin into little tiny pieces so they could give to God a tenth of even that seemingly small thing. Now, it's not wrong to give to God and even to be intentional and very deliberate about making sure that you're not in some way falling short of your obligations to give to God. In fact, Jesus 
uh, in the next chapter, is going to have a series of teachings about giving. It's actually central to how you walk in this world as a Christian. But the Pharisees were committing a sin of making something much bigger than it actually was, and in so doing, excusing missing much more important matters. I heard someone describe them like uh, uh, IRS agents that are digging into your taxes, looking for a little tiny infraction. None of us wants to be in that position. Oh, the Pharisees spent all their time on their tiny calculations of their tithes, so much so that they missed the biggest and most important uh, commands that the Lord gave. The love of the Lord your God, to love your neighbor, and to do justice. Uh, Jesus tells them they're focusing so much on minute things that they've missed the much more important larger matters. Uh, Third, Jesus criticizes them for craving the applause of people in verse 43. Woe to the Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Uh, The Pharisees not only wanted to be uh, known as holy, they wanted to be seen as holy. It was important for them when they gathered for worship each week to have a place of privilege. And the synagogues would be much very similar to what our gatherings of worship would be like, a a building where people would gather or hear the word of God read, there would be singing and praying. But there would often be special seats reserved for highly esteemed, honorable, extra holy people like the Pharisees. Uh, They loved to sit in the privileged spot. They loved people to look up at them and say, ah, look, there goes a holy man. They craved the applause of the congregation. Uh, It's not just in the house of worship, though. It's also out in the marketplace. Uh, There were expectations where if you came across a Pharisee that you had to show honor to them. You had to greet them in a special way to show that they, in fact, were pure of heart and holy. Now, in all of this, the uh, the whole reason behind it is it needs to be public. They crave the applause of people more than they care about the approval of God. But who are they fooling? Certainly not God. He knows the heart. There's one fourth and final criticism from Jesus. Verse 44, it's that they defile others. While they claim to be pure in heart, they actually spread spiritual death to people who unknowingly come into contact with them. He said, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Uh, The law said that if you came into contact with a dead body, or even something that had touched the dead body, like a grave, then for seven days you were ritually impure. So people made extra sure not to stumble upon something that could defile them. Uh, The Israelites once a year would go out, and they would paint all the tombs a bright white, whitewash, so that it would be extra obvious where the uncleanness was. A little bit like a a radioactive warning sticker you put on the side of a storage depot. Uh, Stay away or you might yourself become contaminated. Uh, Jesus uses that example to say the Pharisees, well, they're like an unmarked grave. Uh, They're like a defiled spot in the ground that 
You wouldn't even know you walked over until it was too late. Uh, As people hear their teaching, and critically as people see their examples, they imbibe their value of pretending instead of a heart of purity. And as a result, they multiply the uncleanness among God's people. Now these are some weighty criticisms from Jesus. This is him unloading both barrels, undoubtedly. It's easy to pile on the Pharisees, but we need to stop and ask ourselves, is there anything in our hearts that wants to pretend instead of seeking purity with Jesus, even today as Christians? Ask yourself, do you care more about how you look than how you actually are on the inside? Do you care more about what people think of you than what God thinks about you? Are you ever consumed with minor matters, even to the point where you fail to live up to much more central ones? Might anyone have ever been led astray by something you've said? Or even worse, by something you've done? Uh, Without much effort, each of us can uh, detect a heart that has the same tendencies of the Pharisees. A, A heart tempted to perform, a heart tempted to pretend, a heart that shows itself, wants to show itself to be one thing when inside it's actually something very different. Now, Jesus isn't interested in people who pretend, though. In fact, he's calling us to leave behind our pretending to come find something better. Uh, is it true that Christians are hypocrites? Well, in one sense, yes. Um, Dr. D. James Kennedy once invited a woman to church and was quickly rebuffed. She said, I won't go to church. In my experience, church is filled with hypocrites. Dr. Kennedy didn't miss a beat. He said, you know what, you're right. And the good news is there's always room for one more. Why don't you join us? (laughs) See, properly understood, it shouldn't be a shock that you show up to church and find people that don't live up to the things that they claim to believe. Because properly understood, the message of the Bible is not that we obey well enough to get on God's good graces, Or God looked extra hard and he found just a select few that were pure of heart. It's that there was no one that was clean on the inside. Which is why we need to run to the arms of Jesus to find purity with him. Uh, The Bible teaches us that our sins have defiled our very souls. And no amount of virtue or moral improvement could ever clean away the stain that our sins have brought. But Jesus is so different than us. And so different than the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus had an utterly spotless soul. He never had need of any purifying. Uh, Jesus lived the perfect life, fulfilling each and every one of God's commands, from the most minuscule to the most momentous of them. Uh, Jesus never once gave in to the fear of man. He always cared more about what his Father in heaven cared about. Uh, And Jesus, he doesn't defile people. Now, he actually gives his perfect record of righteousness and purity of heart to anyone who draws close to God through him. Uh, that's why Jesus died on the cross. His blood was, so, was shed so that we could be cleansed from our sins. And he rose from the dead so we could inherit a new life, including a purified heart. So brothers and sisters this morning, would you stop pretending? Uh, Maybe you've been making a good show of your walk with God for a long time. And it feels like if people knew what you were like on the inside, 
that they would have nothing to do with you and you would be rejected. But friend, realize you're in a room full of sinners. We are here because we are all redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It's not a shock when one of us turns out to be a sinner. In fact, we already knew that. We just didn't know the specifics. So we could be quick to admit when we fall short. And we could be quick to repent, knowing God will receive us and restore us. And most of all, we can be quick to draw close to Jesus, who delights to cleanse us on the inside. I'm going to give you a verse to memorize this week and meditate on. Not because it's going to, in itself, purify your heart, but because it's going to remind you that you need to run to Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And here's the part you need to remember. Of whom I am the first, foremost. The Apostle Paul could say that. I happen to think that each of us could say it too. Spend some time dwelling on it and realize Jesus isn't interested in your pretending. Come to him for purity of heart. Okay, how do we actually do that though? Uh, Jesus clearly does want some sort of holiness. I mean, he told us, unless our holiness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Hebrews 12 tells us we have to strive for holiness, without which anyone, no one will see the Lord. How is it then that we can achieve holiness? Is it by finding a better set of rules to follow? Well, that's where our second point comes in. The heart that performs needs Jesus as well. Not just the heart that pretends. The heart that performs. Uh, verse 45 has to be one of the more unfortunate, awkward moments in the Bible. Um, a lawyer speaks up, and I have to think as soon as he's finished talking, as soon as Jesus starts talking, he regrets having opened his mouth in the first place. He said, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. That's kind of the point. Um, now, when you hear lawyer, you are not to think someone in a courtroom, a prosecutor or a defender. Uh, a lawyer is a doctor of divinity. It's a seminary professor, a theologian. Uh, they were the ones who read the scriptures. They were the ones that kept the traditions. And most importantly, they were the ones that wrote the rules that everyone had to follow. And the rules they wrote, uh, they would make the IRS blush. They were so intricate and contradictory and impossible to remember that there's no way anyone could ever keep them straight. So Jesus has a set of three criticisms for them as well, three woes. Uh, the first in verse 46, it's that they are crushing people's souls with their man-made rules. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You're supposed to think of someone carrying a weight on their back, and a no good friend comes along, hey, would you mind carrying this for me also? Puts it on the back. Oh, and this as well, puts in something else, and again and again, until finally it's just too much for the person to bear and they collapse under the weight of it. It's a crushing weight, a crushing moral burden, because these rules don't come from God, they come from men, 
and therefore they are unnecessary and unrealistic. And the lawyers don't even bother to try and help people to, uh, to live them out. Uh, Jesus is not interested in our performance when it comes to man-made rules, however well-intentioned. Uh, this week I spoke with a number of people who have come out of legalistic sort of backgrounds, uh, churches that heaped on top of the Bible all sorts of different rules. What you wear, what you eat, who you can date, how you go about your business. Now, some of those rules started with pure intentions. Someone trying to figure out what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus in this moment, in this place, and this particular issue. But over time, somehow or the other, the move has been made from this might be helpful for some person to do in some scenario to this is the way everyone must do it in every scenario. And what's the result of it? Now, two things come from it over and over again. Pride and despair. Uh, either you're on the side enforcing the rules and you're proud of the fact that you're better than those people that don't keep them. Or you know you can't keep the rules and your soul is crushed under the weight of it. But friends, Jesus isn't interested in performance-based purity. And he exposes the system of the lawyers for what it is. Empty words of men. He has a second criticism for them. Uh, they are finishing what their fathers started in their rebellious hearts. That's what you see in 46 through 51. They're finishing what their fathers started. Now, this section is longer and a little more complicated. Um, the essence of it is that the same heart that their forefathers had that killed the prophets is now beating within the lawyers in Jesus' day. If you go do a study through your Bible at how God's people responded to the men sent to preach the word of God, the prophets in your Old Testament, you'll find there are many instances where they are ignored, persecuted, and even in some instances outright murdered. Why is it that that happened? Uh, Jesus goes all the way back to Abel and all the way to the last example, Zechariah, the A to Z of the prophets had this happen. Why is it? Well, it's because when people buy into a performance mentality, when someone contradicts it with the word of God, oftentimes they lash out in anger. Uh, Jesus said that in fact, these people in the day he was living who thought that they were the true heirs of the prophets. They, they thought they were honoring Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel by building the monuments and elaborate tombs. They in fact were guilty of killing them because they would reject a word from God were it sent to them. They might think that's presumptuous of Jesus. I mean, they haven't done that yet, have they? Uh, they certainly weren't back there to kill the prophets back in the day. But the rest of Luke's gospel, just hang in there. You're going to see the religious elites being the very ones leading the charge to murder the very word of God, Jesus, the greatest prophet of all. In their rebellion, when someone comes along and dares to contradict their rules of performance, they lash out in anger and murderous hatred. So it is today. If you go to a legalistic group and you dare to point out that's not in the Bible, you better be ready for some very heated responses because 
Once you've bought into the performance trap, you don't like anyone to contradict you. As a third criticism, it's that they closed off access to God's word in, verses, in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. Uh, I know that we don't speak on our home phones anymore, so this is a dated example. Uh, but imagine for a moment, you're trying to have a conversation with someone over an antiquated landline, and as you're having a very important conversation with them, someone else picks up another phone somewhere in the house and starts playing extremely loud techno music over the line. Now in that moment, it will, maybe you like techno, maybe you don't, doesn't really matter. Whatever the person was saying, you're not gonna hear, right? Uh, they have filled the airwaves with all sorts of other things than the original message. Well, the, the lawyers in Jesus' day were doing the same thing. All of their rules upon rules were making it impossible for everyday Israelites to hear the word of God. It was as if they took the key that could open up the very throne room of heaven and hid it away so no one could enter in to salvation and the presence of God. Now, it's a scathing indictment on those who were supposed to be the teachers and those who interpreted the word of God, that instead of helping people to understand it, they actually kept them from hearing it in the first place. Now, Jesus spares no, well, uh, spares no fury in describing his rebuke for those who built this set of rules of performance in the day of the lawyers. Now, what are we supposed to do with all this? Well, first, uh, realize legalism is alive today. Uh, certainly, you can find it in other churches, as I've mentioned. It's also one of the differences between Christianity and every other world religion. Um, it's been rightly summarized that every religion you can summarize in this way, except for Christianity, um, that you have to do a set of some things in order to make yourself acceptable or to have some sort of experience of God. Uh, certain holy days to keep, certain rituals to do, certain amounts of money to give, certain prayers to pray. Uh, whatever it is, the formula is the same. Perform the right things and you get to be with God in some sense. But Christianity is so different than all the messages of every other religion in the world at this point. Because the message of Christianity is that there's no amount of rituals you could do, no amount of performance you could ever achieve that would ever bring you into a pure relationship with God. That's why God had to send his son from heaven to welcome sinners into his presence. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, please know that this is the basic message of the Bible, that you can have a forever relationship with the God who made you but you'll never be able to have it on your own. That no amount of performing or pretending will ever make your heart pure enough to be with God. But if you trust Jesus by faith, if you throw yourself in his mercy, if you come to him to let him purify your heart, you'll be saved from your sins. And you'll start a life forever with God, right here and right now. You can leave behind the performance and the pretending and know the God who made you through Jesus Christ. Would you trust him today? Now, my guess is most of us in this morning in this room as Christians 
uh, don't struggle with legalism in the sense that we think there's a certain set of rules we have to follow in order to be saved. Um, the corner of evangelicalism we're in, I think, has rightly emphasized enough that that's work, salvation by works is impossible. But there is another level where we still very often show legalistic tendencies. Uh, not for our salvation, but for our day-to-day -day walk with the Lord. I was reading a book by Jerry Bridges called Transforming Grace. Uh, he tells the story of going to preach at a church. He had a really prophetic, hard-hitting message prepared uh, about how people needed to repent and confess and come back to their, bring their hearts back to God. And it was a faithful message, but as he arrived half an hour before he was supposed to preach it, uh, he found out that someone on the church staff had suddenly died, which meant he was about to preach a hard-hitting message to a church that was in the middle of grieving. He knew that that was not appropriate, and he had no time to write a new sermon. So he went into a quiet place in the church, and he got on his knees, and he started begging God, would you please give me an appropriate message to share? And then he said something happened. Uh, he noticed himself in the midst of that prayer, doing an inventory of all the things he had done well that week. All the times he'd gotten up early to pray. All the amounts of mornings that he had spent reading his Bible. All the times he had spoken kindly instead of harshly, even though someone deserved it. He started listing out all the things he had done well so that God might bless him in this moment, even serving that church. And he realized, oh my goodness, I'm a legalist. Now, God was gracious to bring that to his attention and even to provide him with a message, one that was fitting for the moment. But I think that same dynamic's true in each of our hearts if we take a moment to look at it. Uh, we are so attracted to the idea of performing, uh, maybe not for our salvation, but certainly for the blessings that God gives us. Uh, do you ever find yourself struggling to do well in your marriage? So you think, if I just get up early enough and have longer quiet times, surely things are going to go better in my marriage. Uh, do you ever fall into a particular sin and you feel guilty about it, so you find your way to every church function for the next couple weeks as if you could work off that debt through your doing? Uh, there's an inner performer inside each of us. Uh, but Jesus isn't interested in our pretending or our performing. Uh, he wants us to draw close to him so he can give us his purity of heart. Uh, he didn't just purchase your salvation on the cross. He also purchased your day-to-day -day obedience. Uh, yes, you must obey. Uh, yes, you must strive for holiness. But it's him who works within you by his grace. And his commands aren't burdensome. No, they're done from a heart that's filled with his love and his joy. So brothers and sisters, would you not put on a mask and pretend? Would you not list out a set of rules to follow and perform? Would you instead come to God for, through Jesus Christ for a purity of heart you'll never find anywhere else? Uh, one day, Jesus will finish his work in you. Uh, your heart will be fully pure on that day. You will have a spotless soul like the sun in heaven. Uh, but until that day, day by day, he wants you to come to him to receive the grace and mercy you have in your time of need. Leave behind your pretending and your performing 
Come find purity with Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, riches we heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou our inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in our heart. High King of heaven, our treasure thou art. Uh, forgive us for all the times we have pretended and tried to perform as if that could ever make us pure. Uh, remind us again that you love us, not because of anything we've done, but just because that's the sword of God you are. Uh, remind us that you have purchased everything we need and that you will faithfully and even joyfully provide the grace we need to obey your commandments which are not burdensome. Uh, Jesus, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has been performing or pretending for a long time, I pray that this morning that you would free their soul from those shackles. Uh, Jesus, would you allow them to find the freedom that is in Christ Jesus, the freedom of knowing that you paid it all, and that all they need is in you. Help us now, even as we respond in song, not to care about what other people think of us or the appearance, the way we worship, but for our hearts to be consumed with you, to long for your approval and your joy within us. Work now in us, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.